This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit calcedon.edu. That's C-H-A-L-C-E-D-O-N dot E-D-U to download this book in PDF format or to purchase this book. The Cure of Souls, Recovering the Biblical Doctrine of Confession by Rusus John Rushduni. Copyright 2007, Mark R. Rushduni. Published by Calcedon Ross House Books. P.O. Box 158, Vallecito, California, 95251. All rights reserved. The Cure of Souls. Recovering the Biblical Doctrine of Confession by R.J. Rushduni. Chapter 31. Death and Confession. We often forget that Luther and Calvin were both closer to the medieval Catholic Church than to us, and to modern views of Lutheranism and Calvinism, and, at the same time, further from Rome than we are. First, they saw the differences very sharply, and second, Rome, after the Council of Trent, moved further away theologically from the church Luther and Calvin grew up in. Morals were reformed, but doctrines were developed which sharpened the differences. The same is true of John Knox. He was born in 1505, and it was not until 1542 that he turned to the Reformed faith. In between, he had become a priest. Knox, like the other Reformers, was thus very familiar with Roman Catholic practices, among them extreme unction. This was not exclusively a Roman practice, but was common to other churches as well, including the Church of Armenia. It came to be called in time a sacrament, but its origins were in an apostolic practice and in a text still still cited in all such services, James 5, 14-16. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another, and pray one for another, that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. End quote. In origin, extreme unction, meaning last anointing, was not reserved to the deathbeds, but was used for the sick. It was marked by one the visitation of the sick or dying by an elder or elders, two, prayers were to be said over the sick man, three, he was to be anointed with oil, since the word anoint is in Greek related to the word Christ, the sick or dying man was thereby designated as belonging to God's anointed one, Jesus Christ, although this does not exhaust its meaning, and four, confession was to be made by the sick or dying man. At the same time, five, the hope of healing by God's grace was declared. Over the centuries, this rite tended to be reserved for the dying. In my childhood and youth, this practice, although not called extreme unction, was common to many Protestant groups. It began to wane, however, for various reasons. One, a theological decline and indifference. Two, a hostility to Rome. And three, because Pentecostals and Charismatics began to practice anointing in some healing services. None of these are good reasons for abandoning James's instructions.
The Roman Catholic service, as it developed, proved to be most interesting. In the New St. Andrew Bible Missal, 1966, there are some elements to this order of service that are of particular note. First, the service invokes James 5.14-16 as its foundation. It also cites in detail Matthew 8, in particular 8 verses 5-13, to the episode of the centurion and his faith. There is much here in the way of a stress on God's sovereign grace. Second, this service is very Roman in that it includes appeals for the prayers of the saints at some length. Third, there is both an anointing of, quote, full pardon and the remission of all your sins by the power given to me by the apostolic see, end quote. It is clear why the reformers broke with the Roman Catholic doctrine of extreme unction, but they obviously did not break with the admonition of James, nor with the reliance on confession and a trust in grace. A total trust in God's sovereign grace was common to death, was common to deathbed scenes, and there was, as men approached the end, so great a reliance on God's grace and on the Holy Spirit as one's mainstay that the last days of these men fill us with awe. As John Knox aged, he was unable to walk without being held by younger men and his voice was feeble. Yet when he began to preach, men could sense the mantle of the Spirit descend upon Knox and empower him so that, whereas his voice had become feeble, he would thunder out from the pulpit. We read in McCree, quote, While he was engaged in these contests, his bodily strength was every day sensibly decaying, yet he continued to preach, although unable to walk to the pulpit without assistance, and when warmed with his subject, he forgot his weakness and electrified the audience with his eloquence. James Melville, afterwards minister of Ansrafa, was then a college was then a student at the college and one of his constant hearers. The account which he has given of his appearance is exceedingly striking, and as any translation would enfeeble it, I shall give it his own words. Of all the benefits that I heard that year, 1571, was the coming of that most noble prophet and apostle of our nation, Mr. John Knox, to St. Andrews, who, being the faction of the Queen occupying the castle and the town of Edinburgh, was compelled to remove their frau, with a number of the best, and chose to come to St. Andrews. I heard him teach there the prophecies of Daniel, that simmer and the winter following. I had my pen and my little boker, and took away sick things as I could comprehend. In the opening up of his test, he was moderate the space of an half hour, but when he entered to application, he made me so to grow and tremble that I could not hold a pen to writ. He was very weak. I saw him every day of his doctrine, go hola and fear, that is, slowly and wearily, with a furring of matrix about his neck, a staff in the ain hand, and good godly Richard, and another servant, lifted up to the pulpit, while he behoveth to lean at the first entry, bot. Ere he had done with his sermon, he was so active and vigorous, that he was like to ding the pulpit in blads, that is, it appeared as if he would beat the pulpit in pieces and fly out of it. End quote. For generations, godly men spent their final years, months or days in such a state of preparation and service. 
Their final anointing or extreme unction came from the Lord and His Spirit. On the last day of his life, some hours before his death, Knox said, quote, I have formerly, during my frail life, sustained many contests and many assaults of Satan, but at present he hath assailed me most fearfully, and put forth all his strength to devour and make an end of me at once. Often before he has placed my sins before my eyes, often tempted me to despair, often endeavoured to ensnare me by the allurements of the world, but these weapons were broken by the sword of the Spirit, the word of God, and the enemy failed. Now he has attacked me in another way. The cunning serpent has laboured to persuade me that I have merited heaven and eternal blessedness by the faithful discharge of my ministry. But blessed be God, who has enabled me to beat down and quench this fiery dart by suggesting to me such passages of scripture as these. What hast thou that thou hast not received? By the grace of God I am what I am, not I but the grace of God in me. Upon this, as one vanquished, he left me. Wherefore I give thanks to my God through Jesus Christ, who has been pleased to give me the victory, and I am persuaded that the tempter shall not again attack me, but within a short time I shall, without any great pain of body or anguish of mine, mind, exchange this mortal and miserable life for a blessed immortality through Jesus Christ. End quote. Within a few hours, Knox was dead. I cite this to illustrate my statement at the beginning of this section, namely, that the reformers were closer to the medieval church than to the modern churches which invoke their names. They disagreed with the theological aspects of extreme unction, but they agreed fully with the need for grace for dying and a submissive spirit. The, mod the modern tempter is best summed up by citing Illico, Nath Nathaniel Mickelm, who wrote, quote, The present generation is not morally serious enough to believe in hell. It can scarcely, it can scarcely understand Calvin's words, Without judgment there can be no God. And it has sympathy with the gibe of Heine. The good God will pardon me, for that's his job. End quote. Micklem's observation was first published in the 1930s. It is now more true than ever. Sin is not taken seriously because God is not taken seriously. Some years ago, not long after World War II, a number of leading men in a moderately sized city were involved in a night of lawless sexuality, openly practiced with whores, with much free liquor, and with the men volunteering to perform on stage various acts with the whores. A number of wives, tipped off about the event when it was in progress, broke it up. Because of the politicians involved, the episode was police protected, but because their heart was not in it, some of the officers allowed the wives to break through. The next day I learned, at a popular restaurant, that some of these men had breakfasted together, and the group included Protestants, Catholics, and agnostics, all better described as indif indifferentists. Their common complaint, stated in very crude language, was that their wives were making much ado about nothing. After all, their wives were financially privileged to be married to them, and occasional adultery was no big deal when weighed against all that their marriage gave them. What they were confessing was that sin is a trifling matter. So too is marriage and faithfulness, and so too is life. 
Their naked acts when drunk made them lower than the whores, but they felt injured by their wives' anger. Some Protestants are ready to be critical of extreme unction. Certainly, it cannot meet a biblical standard at all points, but our real problem today is the moral indifferentism of men and women. It is the kind of horrifying complacence before God cited by Illico. Agur gives us a very vivid picture of the moral indifferentism in Proverbs 30.20. Such is the way of an adulterous woman. She eateth and wipeth her mouth and saith, I have done no wickedness. To eat and then to wipe one's mouth of any traces of food or drink leaves no outward evidence. The adulterous woman treats her adultery, if undetected, as similarly of no consequence. In other words, God is not in the picture. Sin is not essentially against him, and what a man does does not know, and what a man does not know will not hurt him. When the confession of sins in life is now nothing to be taken seriously, it is not surprising that it is equally meaningless at the time of death. Of course, we live in an age where the world and its apostate cultures are dying, and they do not know it. They dream and plan in terms of a new world order. Its name is death. This is the end of chapter 31. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio podcast network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.